Welcome to the Millennial Career Playbook's company interview series, which focuses on corporate cultures worth knowing about if you're a job-seeking millennial or simply enjoy working in millennial-friendly environments. This series offers you company-specific information you won't find anywhere else, helping you decide if a particular firm is a great fit for you, and also offering you tips on how to most effectively land a job with the company. I'm Debbie Woldrich, CEO of outsource training company TTC Innovations, which specializes in providing corporations with customized millennial-focused training solutions. Hosting this series with me is best-selling author Haya Bender, whose credits include five dummies books and a complete idiot's guide, and articles for the New York Times. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com, as we're always adding new interviews and other content. Joining Hi and I today is Chris McCoy, Director of Human Resources for Accounting and Professional Services firm Plant Moran. Chris, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at the company? I actually started with the firm back in January of 1986, so I've been with the firm almost 30 years. I was what you'd call one of our traditional campus hires. I joined the firm right out of college when I graduated from University of Michigan and started as an auditor working in a number of industries in audits and after I'd been with the firm about 12 years in 1998 I was promoted to partner. At that point in my career I was focused exclusively in the healthcare space so I was the healthcare audit partner. Over the next probably five to six years I was in a couple different leadership roles in our healthcare practice and then I was put in charge of running our healthcare industry group for the firm. I was in that role for less than six months when our partner in charge of human resources for the firm announced his retirement and they approached me and asked me to take over our HR function. That was about 11 years ago. So at that point, I gave up my clients and my industry focus and quit auditing as a profession and moved internally focused to run HR and all aspects of that, the attraction, retention, promotion, and development of our talent. So I've been doing that for about the last 11 or 12 years. Chris, can you explain to our audience what Plant Moran does? Plant Moran is a professional service firm. Many people in the marketplace might think of it as a public accounting firm, uh, being our predominant services traditionally have been audit and tax services, but we prefer to call ourselves professional service firm uh, because we do a much broader depth of services than just audit and tax. We have a significant management consulting practice base providing business consulting services. We also have a rather large wealth management group that does investment portfolio management for individuals and organizations and other types of services, real estate, merger and acquisition, a significant financial portfolio of services to the marketplace. Take just a few seconds to explain where the name of the company came from. Plant Moran, with many public accounting firms or professional service firms, there's usually some named partners, and Alorian Plant and Frank Moran were the two founding partners of the firm. Alorian started the firm in 1924. Frank Moran joined him a number of years later and quickly became his partner, and the firm became known as Plant Moran after Frank became a partner, and the name has survived since that time. So it was named probably in the 40s, Plant Moran, when uh, Frank joined Alorian, and that's how we got the name. There's a comment on the website that you don't normally see. We're the only firm I've ever encountered to state that we're, quote, relatively jerk-free, unquote. Could you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah, that's actually it's one of Frank Moran's sayings. So to give you a little history on that, Frank Moran, when he joined the firm, he actually was a, he had a, his degree in philosophy. And to put himself through school, he tutored part-time. And he actually, the way he met Alorian Plant, the other name partner in the firm, was he was tutoring Alorian's daughter, was good in math, was tutoring math, met Alorian, Alorian talked him into going back and getting an accounting degree and joining him at Plant Moran, what became Plant Moran. So Frank would have been probably one of the few philosopher accountants you're ever going to 
run across. So he came at the development of our firm and the culture of our firm from a very philosophical perspective and use a lot of imagery and iconics, kind of icons and terminology. And one of the things that he talked about that really caught on was being, he used to talk about being, wanting to develop a jerk-free environment. We want, you know, we want nice, caring people. We don't want jerks. We want to be jerk-free. And at the time, one of the partners, when it was a very small firm at the time, kind of challenged Frank and said, you know, well, Frank, everybody has a jerky moment. And actually, it got Frank to acknowledge and say, you know what, you're right. And he changed his philosophy and he changed it to say that we want to be a relatively jerk-free environment. And it really stuck. And I think it does articulate a big piece of our culture where the golden rule is one of the icons that Frank used when building our culture and talking about the golden rule and doing doing unto others as you want done to yourself kind of plays into this jerk-free environment. But the idea of calling it relatively jerk-free and acknowledging everybody has a jerky moment, but we don't define ourselves by them. And that we really are a caring place, that we care about our clients, we care about each other, we care about our community, and that doesn't leave room for jerks. So we call it right out. And if someone's being a jerk, they get called out for being a jerk. That's why we'd say we're relatively jerk-free. By the same token, would you say that your company is more playful than one might expect, given what you guys do? You know, that's an interesting question. I, I would I would say yes. I would also say that we work hard and we're very, as a rule, most of the people that work at Plant Moran are very driven. They're very career focused. They work hard to serve their clients, but we have a lot of fun doing it. And I do think you picked up on that with the question, I think, kind of transitioning from the jer- relatively jerk-free environment to the playful environment. When you, as we've seen in our culture, when you create an environment of trust and collaboration that really lets some of those barriers come down and you don't have kind of the, the fear of a jerk response, people open up more. I think they're more communicative. I think they're more invested in building relationships with each other. And I've spent 30 years experiencing our culture and would say we are maybe playful is a good way to say it. It Maybe to say we're very trusting with each other, very collaborative and very open in our relationships. And it's an environment where Gordon wrote a blog recently about this. And I love the quote. It was from actually one of our millennials where said, People talk about having work friends, but I think of it as working with my friends. So it is a very friendly, it is a very playful, might be too strong a word almost, but it's a very collegial environment for sure. And whatever things would you mention to make the company a popular place for millennials to work at and things that the company does to attract millennials and retain millennials? It's interesting to me that I think public accounting or professional service environments in general are kind of wired to be attractive to millennials initially. And why I say that is, you know, when you look at some of the research and when I talk to a lot of millennials that join our firm and work in our firm, the research would say, and I've seen it supported, that millennials have a high desire to have feel value in the work they're doing, a strong desire to be associated with and have the opportunity to learn from people that have more seniority and have a lot of experience that they can really learn from experts and people in positions of authority and have direct access. And professional service organizations by their nature have somewhat of a kind of a built-in apprenticeship model where you're working in teams. Typically, you're at a client environment. You could have a 20-something person with less than six months experience out, out of college sitting next to someone with 10, 15, 20-plus years of experience 
in a professional service environment and they're working elbow to elbow directly on client related matters. So there's just professional services in and of themselves tend to be very team dynamic driven and not very hierarchical when you're really doing the day-to-day -day work with clients, which I think builds an attractive environment for millennials in general. Specifically to us, part of our foundational business model is that we have this caring culture that I've described, but it's really driven by kind of three underlying principles. We talk about being having a one-firm-firm philosophy where we're very collaborative. We're not office-centric or geographic-driven from a profit center perspective. It's kind of a the partners share equally in the profits of the partnership. So there's more collaboration. There's less siloing. There's more sharing of resources, talent, opportunity. We have a core value of optimizing, not maximizing profitability. So we have a tendency to be more long-term focused in investment. I think that's been one of the hallmarks of how we've driven some of our growth in our consulting practices and kind of outside of our traditional audit and service, audit and tax services. And then the third one is, I like the way we say it, there's no right way to do the wrong thing, which kind of gets back to that people piece and that jerk-free piece. So when you put those all together, professional services as a whole tend to be attractive to millennials. And I think how Plant Morant's really differentiated ourselves in that regard is building this collaborative, collegial, trusting, open environment in that professional service setting. It's an ideal place for millennials to feel they've got opportunity for growth, development, and learning, direct access to people with a lot of experience in doing what they're trying to learn and getting direct expert, access to expertise and really having significant influence and impact in their day-to-day -day work activities with their clients. I mean, they see it tangibly in the moment. And I think that has really driven this environment of being an attractive place to millennials for us. Could you talk a little more about optimizing versus maximizing? Because I'm not quite clear sure. on that. What we're really talking about there is a focus on looking at the long-term opportunity to serve our clients and build our business. So not looking at the short-term profitable answer when maybe the longer-term answer might be a better answer. So when I talk about the depth of services we have, in some of the more regional or smaller sized professional service firms, it's been more of a challenge for them to build out services beyond their audit and tax core services because to build niche practices in management consulting, say around strategy or ops improvement or in, uh, information technology consulting, you're having to hire fairly high-priced expertise from the marketplace to build that practice. And it could take a pretty significant period of time before that becomes profitable. And in a professional service environment, a lot of times people will be more focused on kind of maximizing the profitability of the partnership as opposed to optimizing the long-term investment potential. So it's kind of hard to break that cycle of the recurring transactional audit and tax services. As an example, we have a trust bank that we've developed knowing that that would be maybe a 10-year play for it to become a profitable line of business for us. But it, it was such an important component of how we serve our clients, and we saw the long-term view. The partners are willing to invest in that for a 10-year window of time because it was the right thing to do. That's, in our world, that's the optimizing versus maximizing process. I don't know if that answers the question or helps yeah, clarify right. It helps. Thank you. How does Plant Moran support an open door policy for millennials? It's funny. I was giving a talk just before I joined you guys to a group of experienced hires for our firm. So let me back up for a second. Kind of our model of hiring is, especially for our more traditional recurring services like audit and tax, we tend to hire 
folks right out of college, most of them graduating with like their bachelor's or their master's degree. So as a result, I think 50, 55% of our staff are millennial because we hire large groups out of college. We also hire folks with experience from the marketplace. And so today I was doing an orientation for, I don't know, about 50 folks that have joined us in the last three to four months from the marketplace. And we were talking about open door policy. So this was a group of folks who aren't coming right out of college, but come from other corporate environments. And it was just interesting because we were talking about a lot of organizations have an open door policy, but there's this almost invisible barrier at that open door that people really don't necessarily give you the cues or give you the signals that I really mean you can come in and see me. I, I say my door's open, but it feels like it's closed. In our environment, we don't we talk about having an open door policy, but it's such an organic process for us that I think the best way to look at it from a millennial's perspective, many of them are coming right out of college. What we do with everybody that joins our firm, they're assigned a team partner. So every partner in our firm has a responsibility to have a team of individuals assigned to them that they're responsible for their career development. So they might not work with them all the time, but they're responsible for their career growth and development. Everybody's also assigned a buddy and that buddy is there to answer all the questions. So there's no question that's off out of bounds. How do I make a pot of coffee? I forgot where the bathroom is. How does the Xerox machine work? Um, helping them get staffed on jobs, helping them get networked and know people in the firm, help them understand our business model. That buddy tends to be somebody more uh, closer to their experience level. So out of the gate, people immediately have someone at a very high level of, of experience and leadership in the firm that's directly invested in their career and someone more close to them in experience who's there to answer their questions and help them navigate learning the firm. And right out of the gate, those two folks are very involved with them and very open door in their policy. And I think that gives people the permission, if you will, or the sense of safety that we really mean it and there is no invisible barrier at that door. Everybody's door's open. We talk about our open door policy, but I think the way we really live it is through this team partner and buddy system and how we quickly get people comfortable with saying, any question's a good question, come in and ask me. If you're not coming in and asking me, I'm gonna go seek you out and make sure you're doing okay. So that high touch system I think is what supports and makes people believe my door is really open <laughs> when it's open. Does the team partner and the buddy, do they serve as a mentor for millennials when they come in? I say all the time, we can assign a team partner and we can assign a buddy. I'm very careful to not use the word mentor when we do that because to me, you can't really assign a mentor. Mentors to me are more of an organic process, I think. Um, mentoring to me speaks to kind of a deeper relationship that has to evolve over time. It's, you know, to say, hi, this is your mentor and you shake hands and you're meeting for the first time. That's not when the mentoring, the mentoring really happens when the relationship happens. So what I would tell you is most team partners and buddies really become mentors to the staff they're assigned to, but we're very careful to also say, that staff member is going to work with a lot of different people on a lot of different projects with a lot of different clients. And they should always look for and seek out opportunities to be mentored by others and learn from others. So mentoring is something we tend to talk about much more organically in the way we work with each other day to day. Team partners and buddies absolutely typically become mentors, but I'm, we're very careful to not call it that because we don't want people to think, in our opinion, they should be mentored all the time by the people they're always working with. What other types of on-the-job training or on-the-job on the learning are available? The on-the-job training really is this apprenticeship idea to me that in a typical environment, we'll be 
we have, we'll have a team of, it might be three or four or six or eight, depending on the size of the project, the nature of the client, individuals working together collaboratively in a conference room at the client, or if they're out of the field and in the office in a conference room in one of our offices, working side by side in the client's files and in our programs and in our tools that we use to perform our services collaboratively where the 20 something millennial is literally working in a room with five other people ranging in experience from a year or two more experienced than them to 20 or 30 years more experienced from them. And it's extremely collaborative in a way that we're very intentional about this too. If I'm the partner in the job and I'm having a conversation with the CFO of the company, we tend to do that in the room with the whole team so people are learning and experiencing real time. So it's a very hands-on, very team-based, very collaborative process. And so I always talk to people about my expectation that they have some, there's learning almost through osmosis. I could be sitting doing my very specific tasks, if you will, on a job. But while I'm doing that, I'm having the opportunity to soak in the conversation between a, a CFO that's been with that client for 30 years and the partner who's been with our firm for 30 years. And I'm learning a ton by experiencing and witnessing that. We have our staff go to board meetings and presentations to audit committees and participate in those at very early levels. So there's just a very intense team-based process that just creates that on-the-job learning for them. It's kind of almost inherent in the nature of what we do. Would they be taking on some pretty strong responsibilities quickly when they join the firm, or would they serve in an apprenticeship role where they're in a learning phase before they end up taking on some responsibilities? Take our traditional audit role, just for simplicity. We would have typically four roles an auditor would go through in their career before they're promoted to partner. They'd be a staff member, then become an in-charge, then a manager, and then a senior manager. And in our performance management system, we have three kind of assessments around their competencies, growing, proficient, and strength. Growing says you're new to the role and you're inconsistent in meeting my expectations because you're still learning it. Proficient says you consistently meet and occasionally exceed my expectations in your role. Strength is you're consistently exceeding my expectations and ready for new opportunities and development. The way it tends to work is someone joins us right out of college. They're going to spend a year learning to be a staff member. They're going to spend a year exercising their skill set as a staff member. Then they're going to spend a year mastering it and teaching another staff member how to do their job. As soon as they've mastered it, we put them to the in-charge role where they learn, then they do, then they master and teach. Then they become a manager. They learn, they do, they master and teach. So any, sta any staff member in our firm, and by the way, we don't use the word employee. We use the word staff member. So when I say staff, I mean any employee. We don't, we don't like to use the E word. Uh, we call them staff. Any staff in our firm are always learning and growing and developing. So if you've been with our firm for a year, I expect you to be teaching somebody behind you how to do what you did last year learning from somebody right ahead of you. And that happens through your entire career. Is that part of the evaluation process when someone is being considered for bonus or some of her compensation, not just how you've performed with clients, but also how you've performed with the people that you're working with? Yes. For example, yeah, absolutely. Um, what I just described to you is kind of the foundations of our performance management process. And we have seven core competencies that people are assessed on on every assignment they work on. Consistently, they get a job evaluation. If they work more than 40 hours on any client assignment, whoever is kind of managing them directly will write a job evaluation on them that assesses all seven of those competencies. And to your point, it assesses their client relationship skills, technical skills, communication skills, staff development skills, whether that's their own development or somebody else if they're in a role where they're developing other people, problem solving, 
practice and network development. I think I got them all. I might have missed one. But anyway, those are assessed on every performance assessment. And then annually, the team partner and the buddy go over a annual performance assessment review with the staff, make overall assessments around all those competencies between that scale of growing, proficient, and strength. Those drive base salary. Competency is really one of our key platforms of how we determine base salary increases. And then at a certain experience level, people enter our bonus pool after they've been with us for three years. They go into our bonus pool. Bonus is driven off results measures, which include the feedback you provide and the development you give to staff that work for you, satisfaction of your clients, job and practice management, and some other financially based like practice development, network development, things like that. So there's a bonus component that's driven off those results measures. The salary component is driven off the competencies. And we're very transparent with all that with our staff. I could have somebody walk in on their first day of their career and I could literally show them the career path of how to become a partner 12 to 14 years later, if you will, typically for an auditor by going through all these roles the growing proficient and strength expectations and the illustrated behaviors of each of these competencies. I can literally walk somebody through and say, this is what you need to do and what you need to master to get from where you're at to the next, to the next, to the next, to the partner role. So there's a very clear roadmap around development and a very clear expectation of how that translates into compensation and bonus for performance. Really interesting. So someone's career is a large component of how successful we are in terms of how much they're helping other staff members, especially ones that they're responsible for teaching. Absolutely. A absolutely. Uh, up to and including our partners. Our partners are also assessed based on competencies and bonuses driven off results and their compensation or participation. There's absolutely a component of that around their ability to develop staff. I think one of the things that Plant Moran that has differentiated us I talk about professional services and this apprenticeship model and how it lends itself to the millennial generation. I think a unique driver for Plant Moran is we have a very high expectation of our partners to be very engaged and involved in the development of staff. We don't allow them or expect them to abdicate that responsibility. In a lot of environments, the in-charge is responsible for developing the staff and the manager for the in-charge and the partner for like the managers and the senior managers. In our world, in that team partner system, they have the responsibility for the career development of everybody from our interns who are, haven't even graduated college yet, all the way up to other partners. And their pay is driven off their ability to perform equally as well in developing those teams as it is to developing new client revenue opportunities or serving existing clients. So there's a lot of skin in the game, if you will, for our partners. We say often we don't promote partners who can't develop future partners. It's a critical component of our partner's success is us being able to project and predict their ability to grow and develop future partners in the firm. Do you happen to know what your retention rates are? Yes. Our retention rates are roughly 88 to 90%. Mm -hmm. um, which is high for an industry norm. Some of that is also going to be driven off the nature of professional services is as people progress in their career, they tend to opt out of public accounting at certain points in their career and go into an industry or corporate environment, go out to be controllers or CFOs of typically clients or what ultimately become clients of the firm. So, a lot of our alumni become our clients and become business developers for us for new clients. But uh, yeah, our retention rate's around 90%. How does the firm encourage millennials to come up with fresh ideas for change and take ownership of them? There's, there's several ways. If we think about our kind of official corporate, if you will, process around that, we actually have a NASM award that's uh, named after a former partner of the firm who used to encourage people to make suggestions if something's not right. He had a saying, if it's, if it's not right, speak up, we'll fix it. And we actually, we have a suggestion committee process and we actually award people for 
the value and quality of their suggestions. And at our That's annual great. Firm conference, yeah, at our firm conference, we get the entire firm together. There's more than 2,000 of us. We go down to the Fox Theater in downtown Detroit and fill up the auditorium and celebrate promotions and celebrate these awards. And we have this NASM award for kind of like the suggestion of the year. And that's a, might be a more traditional corporate kind of suggestion committee answer. But the other thing we do is we're constantly engaging our staff around anything we're looking to do or change, like something new we're doing in the firm or something we're looking at changing in the firm. So as an example, give me an example. We were moving to a new performance management platform. We're going to a new software vendor. And so it would have been really simple to just say, let's just take all of our old tools, let's take our old assessment tools and our old career planning forms, and let's just flip them into this new system. But we, what we did instead was said, okay, you know what? If we're making this change, let's kick the tires on our process and let's go out and talk to our staff and see how they're using it, how they like it, what types of improvements they'd want. So as we would typically do with any type of change like this, we put focus groups together and we went, we tried to cover all the different services of the firm and all the different levels within the firm and had focus groups where we met with staff and asked for their feedback. And based on the feedback and based on people who were very energized about it or very passionate about it, who had good ideas, we literally, in some cases, plucked them out of those focus groups and put them on the team to help build the new forms or implement the suggestions. So there's a, an expectation in our firm that staff will participate in these types of focus groups and actually invest some of their time internally in this process improvement. Another example of that would be we recently put together these technology subcommittees. Technologies become so critical to how we serve our clients and our technology management committee kind of that kind of oversees the strategy of how we use technology said, look, we need to get the millennial group, these younger folks who are much more tech savvy than we are, who are in the field every day dealing with our clients with technology. We need to get them in the room talking about how they think we should be using technology. So we've created these subcommittees and they typically tend to be our less experienced staff who are younger and much more tech savvy in what are the types of applications we should be looking at, how should we be leveraging technology with our clients more effectively, and we've had great success with that. I mean, some great ideas have come out of that. The staff have been very engaged in it. It's been wildly successful. So we, we have those kind of formal committees and processes. And then again, I think it's just to say in our culture, it's a culture of collaboration, communication, and sharing. So I feel like most people have the voice that they want to have in the room to speak up and say, can we try this or why don't we do that? And it'll either be accepted or rejected based on the value of the suggestion. And there's really not a hierarchy to it or a lot of structure to it. It's kind of organic in our culture. And I think people respond to that. How does your company support a work-life balance? Mm. Boy, I could spend a lot of time on that one. I'll try to keep it brief. I'll give you a good example. And this was so fascinating to me. A partner in our firm was retiring this a couple years ago. And so he was cleaning out his file drawer, getting ready to retire. And he came down to my office with a hand-typed memo from Frank Moran to the partners of the firm, and it was dated, I'm going to get the date wrong, it was either like 1972 or 1974, it was early 70s. It's a one-page memo, and you basically could have taken that one-page memo and put it in any contemporary magazine about work-life balance. The entire article was to our partners saying, look, the whole person comes to work, we're just finishing, quote-unquote, traditional busy season, you know, April 15th is come and gone, we have to make sure our staff are recharging their batteries. We need people to have downtime. People have personal lives that are as important as their professional lives. We need to practice what we preach. We need to be demonstrating this by leadership. You guys need to show balance. Our staff need to have balance. I mean, this was written in 1972, and it could have been written in 2012. So honestly, Frank was a visionary around that, and that's this philosophy Benty had. He was very focused to the point where a large client of the firm, an entrepreneurial guy, was building his business, 
was being mentored by Frank and was so impacted by Frank that he wrote a book about Frank's life. The title of the book is called Walking the Tightrope because one of Frank's philosophies, he talked about walking the tightrope. And I actually had the privilege of seeing Frank present at the firm when I joined. He was still, he was retired, but he was still active. And I watched him go through his tightrope walk. And he literally, he was at the time, he was a mid-70s guy up there. And he talked about how one side of the tightrope is professional and one side of the tightrope is personal. Our job is to help people walk that tightrope. And a tightrope walker never walks across that line perfectly calm and perfectly still. They're constantly leaning one way or the other. And our job is to help our staff manage the leans without falling off. And then he would walk through the scenario. I got this job and I'm excited and so I'm working hard and I might be leaning too far professionally. And we need to make sure they don't get too involved in their career, that they've got to have interests outside of the firm. Then I get married and I start a family and I'm leaning personally. And we need to let people have that time, but we need to make sure that they're not giving up the opportunity to continue to grow in their career. And he talks about this balancing act. So we literally created, back in the 80s, the Personal Tightrope Action Committee, PTA, named after Frank. It's now become our Work Flex Committee. That is a committee of staff. We have champions in each office. They're constantly meeting and talking about how are we providing flexibility, how does that look in our firm, how do we celebrate people exercising flexibility, We've done programs. We had this balance buddy initiative where we had the managing partner. He was just in a photo shoot. And at one point he was like sitting like Indian style on the floor. Gordon Crater is his name. And it became like a meme. People talked about cratering because we turned that picture into a balance buddy. And we said, take Gordon with you on your time off. We want to see Plant Moraner showing how they're exercising their balance and take a picture with Gordon. So we had people on a mountaintop with Gordon Crater. We had people on the beach with Gordon Crater. We had people in the backyard swimming pool with Gordon Crater. And people started cratering, people taking pictures, sitting in the Indian style, all around celebrating balance. There's all kinds of stuff. I, I could literally give you an entire podcast on work-life balance. So I'll just stop because it's a passion for me and it's a passion for our firm. But that gives, hopefully gives you a bit of a flavor for it. Let me ask one specific question related to that. Do you have off-site work policies? What do you mean by that? Do people have to show up in the office oh, every oh, day? Oh, I got specific? Yeah, no, yes. We do not have fixed hours. We actually, for salaried staff, we do not have minimum eight-hour requirements. Hourly we do simply because of labor laws, but for our salaried staff, which is probably 85 to 90% plus of our staff, they're not required to fill up an eight-hour day. Um, we don't have set start times. We don't have set finish times. One of the things we talk about, we use the acronym of ART. We talk about the ART of flexibility, and the A-R-T of ART is accountability, reliability, and transparency. What we tell our staff is be accountable to get your work done. Be reliable to others that are relying on that work product to get their, their work done and be transparent in how you do it. The outcome of that is flexibility. So we, we hold people self-accountable to when they're there getting it done to make sure they're being reliable to the others relying on their work and being transparent in how they do it so that we could have a client being served by somebody who's on a completely tailored work arrangement working from home and they'd never know they're not sitting in an office because we have to do it transparently. So as long as we're accomplishing the accountability, the reliability, and the transparency, flexibility is an outcome of that process. So we have a very unstructured process around that. We don't expect people to be there at a certain time. We don't have mandatory work days on the weekends and busy season. We, what we do is we, ha we have people set charge goals and total hour goals for the year, and then they get there how they get there, and we let them manage it. A lot of millennials want to feel that they're doing something to help save the world, hmm. make the world a better place. Could you talk a little about policies that you have in, in place to support that? Sure. A couple things we've done 
is we have a very generous PTO policy. Part of how we built our paid time off days was actually an expectation that two or three of those days are for community service type activities. We don't measure them. We let people measure them themselves. But we encourage people to be involved in the community and to take time off work to do it. We have a lot of activities that happen at a local office level and a regional level around community involvement. But what we found over time as we got bigger, there was all of that kind of grassroots stuff going on, but a sense and a feeling within our firm of the firm not being community involved and being community active. So there was this kind of, it was happening everywhere, but it wasn't obvious enough at a corporate level. So gosh, probably 10 years ago, we created a, an initiative that kind of overlays all that real grassroots stuff called PM Cares. And the PM Cares, there's a committee, and every year they pick a different area of focus for the firm's community involvement. And we say it's got to be human involvement, and it's got to impact the daily living of people in our communities. It's got to be of a nature that it translates across all of our geographies and all of our offices and ideally be associated with some type of organization or structure in the community that we can tie into and leverage their capabilities to really have an impact. So every year there's a different type of initiative. One year it might be providing support to the troops, letters, care packages, whatever. Another year it was all around literacy for youth and book programs and reading programs and involvement in schools. We've done it for abuse sheltered for abused women and children. Uh, so every year we have this very focused initiative that the entire firm participates in that everybody can kind of attach to and have energy around. And all of that is outside of and on top of the grassroots stuff, which we continue to encourage people to do. So there's lots of opportunity. And I think what we've found is, and I think some of it is driven by this millennial generation and their desire for it, is we've had to create more structure so people know where to go to get plugged in and involved. Once we've done that, the response has been phenomenal. People are very engaged and very involved. And we've had a lot of really successful years of not just, it's, and we say intentionally, this isn't about raising money. Money can be an aspect of it and contributions can be an aspect of it, but it's got to involve our staff getting out in the community and helping people in their community. And people have done it. It's been a really cool thing. And what are some tips that you offer to millennials who are seeking to look at joining your team? We kind of have two models. We have this campus model and this experience model. To millennials, to anybody, I'd say do your research. Understand who we are. Do your homework up front to really be able to articulate your understanding of who the firm is and why you think you'd fit with the firm. There's certain technical credentials, educational credentials that folks absolutely can get and excel at. And to me, the most successful are people who come into an interview. I interview a lot of individuals for employment opportunities in our firm. And being able to articulate how they've done their research and understand who we are and are able to talk about how they see themselves fitting in that culture, fitting in that environment, and being able to make the firm successful based on their skill set. So as opposed to being passive, be active. Do your research. Do your homework. We get 20,000 resumes a year, and we hire three to 400 people. I tell people all the time when I'm in these orientation sessions, you're in the 98th, 99th percentile. So kind of look to your left, look to your right, little high five, little fist bump, good for you. The reality is our focus is, and we're not shy about saying this, we want to hire the best and brightest that fit our culture. And that's not to sound elitist. It's just that we're not necessarily for everybody and not everybody's not necessarily for us. The best advice I could say is, be prepared, do your homework, and then truly make sure that it fits you and you see yourself living here, working here, making friends with these people, because that's what we expect people to do. And it either will fit for you or it won't. If you've got 20,000 resumes coming in, are there yeah. some key things that you look at? 
Sure. Let's talk really about the kind of that campus model because I think that's where a lot of the millennials tend to, at this point, be entering our firm. Like I say, obviously there's some of the standards. You're going to go to a specific university. You're going to get a specific type of GPA. We have to do some filtering, so obviously we got to take the 20,000 down. So we look at GPA. We do. But what we try to do is we, we're very active on campus throughout the year trying to network with and meet students so that we can see beyond the grade and see the person. So the way, the way somebody stands out in their resume to me is that their resume shows more than just their academic GPA. It tells the story of who they are and what they've done to get to this point in their life. So no matter what that work experience is, show the diversity of the work experience. Sometimes people tend to leave it off because they think it's not relevant. I want to see it all because it tells me who you are. It tells me your journey. It tells me what drives you, what motivates you. Be active. Participate in the social and political and cultural aspects of the campus that you're on and be able to demonstrate that. The whole, the whole person comes to work. So let me see who that person is so that we can understand that it fits with who we are and what we do. So I think that's two, one would be the, on the resume, don't leave the stuff out. Don't think that's not relevant. It's relevant. The other one would be network, absolutely network. When you're on campus, there are tons of opportunities where firms like us and others are out there actively trying to find bright individuals who are engaged and dynamic and looking to have a career and we're out there setting up opportunities to meet with those folks. Come forward when you go to a presentation at a class or your business fraternity and shake hands and smile and make eye contact and I'm going to walk away remembering who you are. It that never fails. I go to one of those presentations. I walk away with a short list of names of people. I go back to our recruiters and say, seek this person out, get to know them. I think they could really be a good fit with us. And it's because they made the connection, make the connection. What things beyond what you've just mentioned do you look for in terms of that person being a fit? I think it's really individuals that show energy, passion, drive, and have balance in the demonstration of it. So yes, I want, we want, the firm wants, highly competent, very, very bright people. So academics matter. They absolutely matter. But personality matters. I mean, in our profession, people tend to go into accounting. Let's just, I'm going to pick that as an example, because they think they're good with numbers or they, they like the debits and the credits and how things balance. But at the end of the day, what we really do is communicate deep technical issues in layperson terms to our clients, it's about relationships. So what I'm looking for are people that are good communicators, that have natural energy and personality and can emote that and who can show how they can engage positively with others, work collaboratively in a team and get along with others. When you think about our relatively jerk-free environment, we talk about working heavily in teams when you talk about collaboration and you talk about this kind of learn, do, master, and teach and how you're constantly changing that, you're looking for people who have an appetite for lifelong learning, have energy and drive to continue to grow and develop and succeed, but can do it collegially and in a relatively jerk-free environment. It's hard to do that off a resume. That's why we spend so much time on campuses or the interview process for our experienced hire staff, the feedback I always get when someone hires in with us is, my gosh, you know, I interview with like eight different people. Why did I have to go through such an exhaustive process? And it's because we have to spend enough time with you to see if we can spend enough time with you. It's very relational for us. What tips can you offer millennials for once they are hired and they've joined your staff? I think the number one thing is never stop asking questions. If you're uncertain about the next thing you're supposed to be doing, go ask somebody. Communicate, communicate, communicate. You can't over-communicate. It is such a dynamic environment. 
it is a place where we expect people to constantly be learning new concepts, new responsibilities, and new roles, that the most important thing people can do is be comfortable saying, I don't know the answer, I need to go get help. And that's something that's not necessarily bred into people through their college process, right? So I think that's, that's one of the things we hit really hard with people when they join us and we continue to reinforce is communicate, communicate, and ask. If you don't know, ask. It's the best way you can be successful. Any other tips that you can offer millennials who are interested in a career? I think it really is that opportunity to be marrying interest and passion with the marketplace. So do your research, be open to opportunities and be hungry for it. Go for it. Don't be afraid to be that person that walks up to the front of the room and shakes hands with the presenter or goes out of their way to network and get to know people. You're going to have to take control of building your own career. If you put yourself out there, people will be attracted to that. They will seek you out and they will give you opportunity. But the more energy you put out, the more opportunity you're going to get. So I'd say just go for it. Is there anything else that you might want to say that hasn't been covered? What I'll say is I'm a little biased because I've spent 30 years here. I do think Plant Brand is a great place to work. I've had the opportunity and the privilege to meet a lot of organizations out there who are really special and unique in how they do what they do and how they engage their staff and their community and their clients. And so all I'd say to your audience is if you're looking for organizations where you can make a difference, have a real impact, have friends at work, feel like you're collaborating, feel like you're learning, feel like you're having a career they're out there. They exist. Just do your homework, ask the questions, get engaged, and you'll find them. I think we're one of them, and there are a lot more out there. I love this generation. I get to work with a lot of millennials. Like I say, this, the majority of our firm is millennials, and they're some of the most energetic, enthusiastic, engaged, willing to put 110% in and I'm excited for the future knowing they're going to be running the place someday. So that's, that's all I've got. Thank you, Chris, so much for giving us such a great insight sure. into Plan Moran. Hi, and I thank you for listening to this interview. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com as we're always adding new interviews and other content designed to help you find a job or enhance your career.